If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Henry David Thoreau. In this episode, you'll get further into Henry's way of thinking. Pay attention when he says, I will break that law as often as I can. Such a peaceful man that definitely had a moral compass for what was right and what was wrong. Tell me a little bit about that. I'd love to hear. Well, I had first become interested in the Hindu scriptures when I was at Harvard College. And I had read bits of the Vedas and the Upanishads and even even parts of the Bhagavad Gita, uh, but had never read the entire poem before. About the time that I was living at Walden Pond, Mr. Emerson obtained a copy of, of the Bhagavad Gita. It was an English translation from last century by an Englishman named Wilkins. I want to say 1785 or, or 86, perhaps, when it was published. But anyway, he read, the, he read it, and then he loaned it to me, and I was reading it when I was living at Walden Pond, and eventually I loaned it to Mr. Alcott. I'm not familiar with that. Could you tell me what it is about? Well, the, the book is a, a conversation between Krishna, the Hindu god, and a soldier named Arjun. And the entire book centers around the idea of Arjun has to go to battle. And he is not sure if he wants to fight or why he should be fighting or, or what happens if he were to be killed in the battle. And so the idea that Krishna gets a, a, across to Arjun is the idea that you must live your life, be it good or be it bad. This is the life you have been chosen to live, and you must make the best of that life. And so that is what I was reading when I was living at Walton Pond. However mean your life is, you should live it. Rather than, than, than complaining about your life and, and calling, your, calling it hard names, make the best of the life that you have. I think that no man's life is ever ever as poor as he thinks it is. And so you must look for the bright in the dark and make the best of the situation. Very interesting. So let's uh, let's change directions a little bit and let's talk about transcendentalism. All right. You, you, you'd mentioned that a couple of times. I understand. Am I right to say that this theory comes from Mr. Emerson? Well, it comes from Mr. Emerson and others, and I have been I have been called a transcendentalist, but I have also been called many things. <laughs> but <laughs> but transcendentalist does not necessarily bother me. Many of the men that became known as transcendentalists, and this this was back in 1834, 1835. Most of the men that became known as transcendentalists were all Unitarian ministers. Mr. Emerson, Theodore Parker, a man named Frederick Henry Hedge, and others, they were looking for a more direct relationship with God. And they did not necessarily think that going to church every Sunday and hearing some minister drone on and on about finding God was exactly the best way to do that. And so they decided to start meeting 
on a semi-regular basis to discuss God and religion and then eventually nature and literature. And uh, they started to be called transcendentalists because they were, they comes from Immanuel Kant. And they were reading Kant and Hegel and Schilling and Carlyle and Coleridge and all of these, uh, this other works that are spiritual and religious and literary to answer the question, why are we here? Why are we in the midst of this universe? And what is, what is our responsibility to be here? So that is how that got started. And those conversations and those meetings would go on fairly regularly. And so they would start to in- introduce other people or invite other people to their conversations that were not necessarily Unitarian ministers. And so people like Margaret Fuller, Bronson Alcott, myself, and others would be invited to these conversations. And so it became known as the Transcendental Club, although none of the transcendental, <laughs> none of the transcendentalists ever used the word transcendentalism. <laughs> as Mr. Emerson said in an essay called Transcendentalism, all transcendentalism is is idealism for the 19th century. And that is what they were discussing. Idealism being, why are we here? What is, our, what is our responsibility as a human being? What is our responsibility as a rational thinking person? Do we have a relationship with God? How do we get closer to God? How do we get closer to our place in the universe? How do we become one with the universe and become one with God? I'd like to know what role you played either further that or or change it, or, or continue the theory as it was. And, and I guess I would also like to know, it sounds like you just asked a bunch of questions that caused people to ask more questions. Did, <laughs> did you come to an answer? I do not know. I, I do not know if any of us came to any answer. About the only thing that we all agreed on was that we agreed on nothing. And, and so... <laughs> And so some of the transcendentalists considered themselves Christians because they believed in the teachings of Christ. Some of the transcendentalists believed that Christ was the son of God. Other transcendentalists believe that we are all the sons of God and the daughters of God. So you are exactly right. There were, there were many more questions than there were answers. As for myself, I believe that and I said this earlier, I believe that God is not only with, within me, but he is without me as well. And you can call it God, you can call it Krishna or Buddha or Christ. Mr. Emerson calls it the oversoul. It is that spark of divinity that is within each and every one of us. But that spark of divinity is also within nature as well. I think that we can all agree that God is perfection. And so a perfect God would never make imperfect creatures. So why does man do imperfect things? Because we listen to society more and listen to God less. But if we transcend our senses and turn our thoughts and our feelings inward to that spark of divinity, we will transcend not only ourselves, but society as well, and we'll become part and particle of nature. There is so much good and there's so much bad at any given time, and I still feel like it's beautiful, and I feel like God is everywhere. I, ha- I, ha- I feel that as well. And yet, if you were to go back a thousand years, people have been asking this question for as long as there have been people, and we keep not finding the answer. 
No, and I, so I agree. What, what is the value of looking if we never get to the answer? Well, what is the value of, of hiding your head in the sand or hiding under the covers and not looking for the answer? Uh, that is the life that I would not want to live. I feel that looking for the answer is better than, than ignoring the question. All of these transcendental ideas, you must realize, or you must you must think, or you must understand. We were considered very blasphemous <laughs> by by many people. We had been called heretics and blasphemers and 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 pagans and and all kinds of things. And even the word transcendentalist was not necessarily a compliment. I must tell you, but I believe that because of the way that I live my life and the way that I I am always looking for God in nature. I feel that I am a, a mystic and a, a transcendentalist and a natural philosopher to boot by understanding nature and how she works from, from the largest tree, the largest mountain to the smallest insect, by understanding how nature works, I feel that I am also understanding how God works. There is, uh, there, there is a, there, there seems to be a great divide between religion and science. And I find that the two rarely meet. You are either religious or you are a man of science and you cannot be both. However, I honestly believe that there is more science in men's religion than there is religion in men's science. <laughs> and, yeah. so, and so I do not see how or why religion and science should necessarily be at odds with each other. You had said that you've been called many things. If uh, you were to look at what people write about you now, some of them call you an American naturalist, some of them call you an essayist, some of them call you a poet, some of them call you a philosopher. Well, when I think back about reading about Benjamin Franklin and uh, his biography, I just it's one of my favorite books of all time, Benjamin Franklin, when he was buried, as you, you may or may not know, he, they asked what he wanted put on his grave is he didn't want put on that he was this extraordinary person in, in American history and the founding father and all these things. He just wanted to be listed as a printer. And of those, American naturalist, essayist, poet, philosopher, is that how you would refer to yourself? I would I would consider myself an, a, a naturalist. I have as many trades as fingers. I have been a pencil maker. I have been a house painter. I have mended stone walls and fences. I have written poetry. I have lectured. I have been called an abolitionist. I have been called a transcendentalist. But I consider myself, an, I suppose I consider, currently consider myself a naturalist more than anything else. I, I do not like the idea that I am being called a philosopher. I think philosophers are just broken down poets. <laughs> but, uh, and I do not necessarily know if I trust any of the philosophers that I know. There is only one philosopher that I can really admire that I would listen to time and time again, and that is the wood thrush uh, in the woods. The, the wood thrush is the greatest philosopher that I know. Is there an animal in the woods that you most look forward to finding or seeing or hearing? I would say absolutely the wood thrush. He is, he is the Shakespeare of the woods. And whenever I hear his bubbling sound, that always brings me out of, brings me out of the dumps. And I feel like, 
myself and nature around me is very healthy. So I enjoy hearing the wood thrush, certainly the loon in the lake and the hooting of the owls. I enjoy hearing all of that. I would rather hear the hooting of the owls than the hooting of men, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I can understand that. I was on vacation here a couple of days ago, and one of the things that we did is we, we met with a falconer and, and held owls. This owl made a growling noise. It was an angry noise. And I, I asked the gentleman, the falconer, I thought owls hooted. And he said, no, 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 there's a couple owls that hoot, but most of them make this, this crazy noise. So apparently you have the good owls. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, have, uh, we, have, we have barn owls. I've seen the barn owls. I've seen barred owls. So there are various owls that we have in our woods. Uh, we have a, a very good selection here in, in Concord Woods of, of all sorts of, of bird life. And uh, one of the chief advantages of living in the woods when I was at Walden Pond was being awakened every morning by the various bird song that was all around me. When you were talking about the group of so-called transcendentalists that would get together to speak, and they didn't refer to themselves as transcendentalists, and then you made the statement that in the end, we agreed on almost nothing. When you said that, the first thought that came to my mind is, if you had conversations and eventually agreed on nothing, maybe you should have called yourselves politicians. <laughs> well, no, I think that most of the most of the men that I know probably would not make very good politicians because they know right from wrong. <laughs> Perfect answer. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you had mentioned that you were a pencil maker at one time. Tell me about that. Well, it is my it is my father's business. Father has been a pencil maker now since 1823, 1824. My uncle Charles, my mother's brother, he discovered a uh, graphite mine in New Hampshire. And so he went into the pencil making business and about 1823 or so. So I must have been about five or six or seven years old when father started making pencils. And there were several pencil makers in Concord. And all of our pencils were the same as anybody else's. And the graphite was, was either combined with, with either glue or wax. And so the, the pencils, they tended to be very greasy and very brittle. But about the time that I was at Harvard, I did a little bit of research and, and discovered that the Germans and the French, who make the best pencils in the world, they would combine their graphite with a various clay and they would bake them together and then their pencils would be much harder uh, and depending on the ratio of clay to graphite that you would combine you would have different hardnesses of pencils and so that's what we did with with our pencils so we make different hardness of pencils and we number them one through four depending on the hardness of the pencil is the pencil business a lucrative business well to be honest with you We've not really made pencils now for several years. We, make, we still make some, and Father did very well as a pencil maker. But because of the graphite that we have, we mostly sell our graphite to the printing companies in Boston. Oh, I see. So that is, that is how Father and our family make most of our money. But Mother also keeps a boarding house here in our home. We always have borders. And so between Father's pencils and, and the borders that stay here, and of course, I, I various, uh, various trades as well. I have taught myself land surveying, and I will do that if I want to earn a few dollars here and there. But when I graduated from Harvard, 
I said that I was going to turn the Bible on its ear and work one day and rest six. And, uh, <laughs> and I have, I have accomplished that. I have done very well, which I suppose is good because I have always tried to cultivate poverty and solitude and working one day a week is very good at, at maintaining my poverty and my solitude. That is fantastic. I don't know if you've read any Benjamin Franklin, but do you know what his hourly schedule was for work? I do not. He said, if you want to be successful, you only have to work half days. And it doesn't matter which half of the day you work, the first half or the second half, but you have to work half the day. I rather agree with that. I think that you only need to work about six weeks out of the year in order to obtain enough money to last you the remainder of the year. And of course, this is if you simplify your life if you have a smaller house, but you walk into some of these houses in Concord and some of these houses are quite large and they have whole warehouses of furniture in these rooms. Every house has a best parlor and it has the nicest furniture, but it is a room that they barely use. And that makes no sense to me whatsoever. And so I find that if you simplify your life, then working one day a week will meet all of the needs that you that you have. And I have very few needs and I have even less wants. So I am quite happy living the life that I am living. Boy, that's a fascinating statement because I think that you would find, if you were in this time right now, I think that you'd be very disappointed to see how many people have homes that maybe 75% of their rooms, they never get used. Ever. That, does, that does not make much sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have... We have uh, we have a fairly large house here on Main Street in Concord, but I can I can tell you that all of the rooms are being used <laughs> by somebody or other at any given time with my father and my mother, my sister and myself, and the various boarders that are staying with us. My bedchamber is in the attic, and so I can... I can be sequestered up there away from the rest of the noise downstairs. But unfortunately, on hot days like this, my garret can become quite sweltering. And so on hot days, I am forced to spend time below with my family and the boarders. That is when I decide to go for a long walk. <laughs> That's why the walks are so long, so you can get far enough away. Four hours, you said, right? I can walk at least four hours every afternoon, and I can walk 10... 15, even 20 miles in an afternoon. And I can go places in Concord where there are no other living people besides myself. And uh, those, are, those are good days when I am on walks like that. Are you comfortable sleeping outside? Do you ever just go for a walk and end up somewhere and think, you know what, this is, I'm just going to stay here. I'll go back in the morning. Oh, I am, I am not necessarily against sleeping out of doors. I have gone on many camping and camping trips. In fact, I recently returned from a two-week excursion up to the White Mountains, and we are camping there. So I am, I am quite comfortable being out of doors and, and camping. When you talk about your, your family, between your, your father and his pencil-making business and your mom taking on borders, it sounds like even though you try to keep things simple, you're also very industrious and come from a background of that. The house that you're living in right now that you said that every room is used, is this is your parents' home? Yes. Father bought it about eight, eight or nine years ago. Can you tell me about this house? Well, it is. we were living over by the railroad depot, not too far from where our current house is. But mother always wanted to have a house on Main Street close to the center of Concord. And so this house became available 
uh, almost 10 years ago in, in 1849. I suppose father would not be too upset about me saying this, but it cost father around $1,500, I think, for the house. But mother wanted to be close to the center of town. And, and by then, John and my sister Helen, well, she died before we moved into the house. But mother always has always been keeping borders. The house that we are living in over by the railroad depot, father and I did some of the construction on that. And so we, we put a lot of money into that home. But this house is much larger and much roomier. And we have a yard and a garden. And mother keeps a rooster and, and father keeps a pig. <laughs> and uh, and we, are, we are right on Main Street. And the house across the street uh, is my friend Ellery Channing, the poet. That is his house. And he lives across the street from me. And he is one of my favorite walking companions. Mm. And so we will walk together all hours of the day and night. So you've got pigs and chickens and you spend all this time with animals. Is there an animal that you don't you don't care for? Well, when I was living at Walden Pond, I did not particularly care for the woodchucks because they kept eating my beans. <laughs> do you blame them though? No, I do not blame that at all them at all. But uh, there was one particularly large fat woodchuck uh, who was always clearing my beans, and I asked one of the local farmers, "Well, how do you get rid of a woodchuck?" And he said, "Well, you shoot them, you fool." Uh, <laughs> Not going to sh I was not going to shoot a woodchuck. And so I, uh, I made a box trap and I caught the woodchuck and I took him down to the pond and I gave him a strict talking to and I told him to leave my beans alone and I let him go. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, who do you suppose was back in my bean field but that same woodchuck. And so I caught him again and the farmer that told me to shoot him I put the woodchuck in his bean field. <laughs> well, now, was that your way of taking care of him, or were you trying to punish the farmer? Who were you trying to punish there? <laughs> uh, well, uh, the woodchucks were, were – that was not the only woodchuck who was vexing to my bean, to my bean field. Um, in fact, I even went so far once as to kill and, and eat a woodchuck that was eating my beans. Have you, have you had woodchuck? You know, I, we don't need a lot of woodchuck in this time. Uh, I would not advise it. But I, I have almost entirely given up the eating of meat. I find it disagreeable to my conscience. You do eat meat, though, right? On occasion. If I go to Mr. Emerson's house or elsewhere, for instance, on, on our camping excursion to the White Mountains, we were eating salt pork and, and salt beef and whatnot. I will eat meat at Mr. Emerson's house because I do not like to be a bother. But we grew up relatively poor and so we never had a lot of meat on our table anyway but and even when i was living at walden pond i would still catch a mess of fish for my supper but every time i did that i would lose a certain amount of respect for myself i hope that i've almost entirely given up the eating of flesh unless i absolutely have to do you think that the reason that you don't eat certain meats is because you physically don't feel good? Or like you said, you just feel like a lesser person because you're killing an animal unnecessarily, or oh. is it maybe both? Well, yes, physically and I suppose intellectually and morally. I was raised in a temperate household, and so we never had alcohol or tea or coffee or, or other ardent spirits of that nature. And so I find that on the occasion where I do drink coffee, 
I do not feel as healthy as I would otherwise. So uh, I try to avoid certain foods because of the way that they make me feel. Uh, and, and really, the only true drink for a wise man is water. And that is the drink that I, that I partake in the most. I feel like as I get older, I'm more aware of this. Personally, I don't drink a lot of alcohol. And I, I'm under the impression that you don't either. I do not. What are your feelings on, on alcohol? The Grahamites, as they are called, the followers of, of Sylvester Graham, they would have you believe that that alcohol is one of the greatest uh, curses in American society. I do not necessarily know if I agree with that, but certainly I know some poor men in Concord who suffer from, from their drinking, so it cannot be very healthy for them. And so for myself, I would never want to be in that sort of a situation. You'd mentioned that some people would call you an abolitionist. Tell me about yeah. that. Well, I come from an abolitionist family. My sisters and my mother were founders of the Female Anti-Slavery Society here in Concord. And our family has always been very closely associated with William Lloyd Garrison, the, uh, the abolitionist in Boston. He publishes the, the newspaper, The Liberator. And so the only newspapers that we get at our household by subscription are The Liberator. I think we get the, uh, the anti-slavery standard. And I think we also get Frederick Douglass's newspaper. And so, and I have met, I have met Frederick Douglass. Uh, I have met Wendell Phillips. Uh, I have met uh, some of the, the black abolitionists in Boston as well. I have met Sojourner Truth. I gave an anti-slavery lecture in Framingham, Massachusetts about four years ago. It was the summer, it was the summer of 1854, the same summer that Walden was published. Every year in Framingham, which is not too far from Concord, the abolitionists, the Garrisonian abolitionists, have on the 4th of July, they have an anti-4th of July rally. Because really, what is the point of celebrating independence when we have over 3 million Negroes in bondage? That, wow. that does not sound, that does not sound like uh, all men are created equal to me. And so the abolitionists every 4th of July have a, have a rally. And I was asked to speak at that rally. And I read my lecture, which I called Slavery in Massachusetts. And Sojourner Truth was there. William Lloyd Garrison was there. Lucy Stone. So I've been, I've had the fortune, uh, the good fortune of meeting many of the abolitionists in Boston and from elsewhere. You obviously have strong feelings about slavery. How do you think that this turns out? Well, for many years now, we, meaning abolitionists, and I do not, I do not officially belong to any abolitionist society. I have, okay. never, I have never joined any official organizations. But I consider myself an abolitionist because I feel that slavery should be abolished immediately, once and for all. And there have been various laws that I feel that I should break because they are unjust laws. The fugitive slave law being a, a, a good example. Uh, that is a law that has turned every one of us in the North into slave catchers. And if we see a fugitive slave, it is our, our duty as American citizens to return that man or that woman to slavery. And I want no part of that law. And I will break that law as often as I can. And I have helped several runaways who have come through Concord find their way to Canada. The, the newspapers are calling it the, the under, 
underground underground railroad i i help them get to the real railroad and uh, find their way to boston and eventually to canada and uh, if i were to be caught doing that i could be arrested and fined and i would gladly go to jail for that i've been in jail once and so i would gladly go back to jail again what can you tell me about the underground railroad well, I cannot say much, of course, because it is highly secretive, but there are a goodly amount of us here in Concord who are involved in helping runaway fugitives come through Concord and get their way to Canada. We will give them money, we will give them clothes, we will physically take them to the railroad station and uh, make sure they get on the right train so that they can get to Canada. So we will do whatever we can to help them uh, find freedom north of the border. Why do you think it is that some people in your time can't see a black person as a whole person? Well, <laughs> that is probably a whole day's worth of conversation that we could have. But uh, from the very beginning of our country, the black man has been represented as only three-fourths of a person. And I think that the best way for some people, for the best way for the Southerners to keep these people in bondage is to somehow convince themselves that they are not people. They, they have to convince themselves that, that they're property or animals. Well, and of course, the, 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 the Supreme Court, uh, not too long ago, the Supreme Court said that black people are not human, and they are not citizens, and they do not have any rights because they are property. So the, the United States government is complicit and making sure that these people remain in bondage. I cannot, I cannot support a government if it is also the slaves' government, and I want no part of it. That is why I do not pay my poll tax. That is why I do not vote. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison, for many years, has said there should be no union with slaveholders, and I want no part of that. I, I cannot support a government that also supports slavery. You, you said that you met Sojourner Truth she a was, couple times. She was born enslaved. And she herself has helped many fugitives. She has gone back into and helped runaways get to Canada. And she is a very outspoken lecturer on anti-slavery. I mean, obviously you want slavery to end, but what would happen next? A lot of slaves are used to being treated as property. And from my understanding, do not have the education to maybe take on the jobs that maybe even maybe even know what, wouldn't know what to do if they had to try to support themselves. Is that the impression that you get? And so what would that look like? Well, if all of a sudden there were all these people that are now free. Well, I think that they would, there would have to be a certain amount of education. In fact, my sister Helen, before she passed, she often talked about perhaps start, starting a school for runaway slave children or, or fugitive slaves to help educate them. Frederick Douglass has said the same, that with freedom comes the responsibility to be educated. And so, but that is, regardless of, of your color, education is very important if you want to remain free intellectually and morally, as well as politically. Education is where that all begins, I believe. Are, are you 41 right now? Is that correct? I am, Yes. You've written so much and seen so much and spent time trying to understand what all of this means. How has your temperament changed over the years? <laughs> well, when I was born, July 12th, 1817, we did not have canals. 
We did not have railroads. We did not have the telegraph. We did not have a lot of the inventions that we have now. And certainly we have more states than when I was born. I suppose that I am still looking for what I consider to be the truth. I am trying to live my life as truthfully and as honestly as I can. I am always trying to follow my genius. Any man who who follows his genius will never be led too far astray. Uh, Although my genius can be quite crooked, I admit. However, (laughs) I think that as long as you are are fancy-free and thought-free and and follow your genius and and follow your heart, you will live the life that, that you want to live. As I said in Walden, I learned this, at least by my experiment, that infinitely in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, you will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. And that is what I have always tried to do, and that is what I trust I will continue to do for however many years I have left. Beautiful. What are the, the Native Americans, or the, I think they would be called Indians in your time? What is oh, we, we, there have not been Indians of, of any consequence in Massachusetts since before the American Revolution. Most of the Indians have, from Massachusetts have been gone. We still get various small bands of, of Indians that come through Concord on occasion, selling baskets and blankets and, and their wares and things like that. But we do not have any large populations of Indians here in Massachusetts. I've seen Indians in Maine. When I was in Maine, I spent time with, with Penobscot Indians up there and enjoyed my time with them greatly. I have always been quite quite an admirer of the Indians and the way that they live in the woods and, uh, and the way that they survived for as long as they could. In fact, Mr. Hawthorne and Mr. Alcott and even Mr. Emerson have said that when I am in the woods, I am very Indian-like. <laughs> and I, ta- I take that as a compliment. I find that there is a great deal that we can learn from them. Uh, when you see a white man in the woods, he seems very much out of place, as if he does not belong there. When you see an Indian in the woods, he is very much at home because that is his home and he belongs there. And when I was in Maine, I took great pleasure in talking to our Penobscot guides, asking them the very words uh, if, I, if we would see a moose or, or another plant or another animal. I would ask them the Penobscot word for the various things that I would see. And my guide told me that I was a very good paddler in the canoe, which I took as a great compliment. Uh, are, are you, in fact, a good paddler in the canoe? <laughs> I suppose I, if the Indian liked me, I suppose I did a very good job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, until you just said this, I never put that together, how similar you tried to live, that being almost exactly how the Native Americans or what you call the Indians, they're known to have lived. I, I have read a great deal. I, I have been keeping an Indian notebook for many years on all of my readings about, about the Indians and how they, everything from their culture to their, to their clothing, to their religion, to their weapons, to their hunting skills, whatever. I have been keeping a journal, a notebook on all of the readings that I have done about them. You've published how many books? Two. Uh, Walden, and then isn't the other one about a trip with your brother? Yes, my first book, I called it A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, and that is the, the book that I was writing at the pond. But how much have you actually written? Because I know in my time how much has been published, and you'd be very surprised. How much, how much have you written? 
I have written two books. I have had probably about a dozen essays published in various periodicals. And I have lectured about 60 times. I do not like to lecture. I, I only lecture if I have asked or if I have something that I particularly want to say. Mr. Emerson, of course, lectures a great deal every year, and he has gone several months out of the year, and he lectures as far west as, as even St. Louis or, or Chicago or, or Cleveland. But uh, myself, I've not lectured very often. I really do not like giving lectures. More often than not, I am hired to give a lecture, and then they proceed to tell me what I should lecture on. And... <laughs> And I think to myself, well, if that is what you want to hear, why do you not just lecture yourself? Um, <laughs> and so I think, I think that if I am asked to lecture and they are, they are truly interested in what I have to say, well, then I will give a lecture. But for the most part, I am, I am quite happy not giving lectures. I think that there are advantages to my obscurity and I, I enjoy not being on the road lecturing as Mr. Emerson does. The notes that you have taken over the years, some of the people in this time have used that information to compare what Walden was and different parts of Concord were like compared to what they are right now. So they've used that information to compare the two to see what's changed. Well, I am I am flattered to hear that. I, I I keep very meticulous records of of not only Walden Pond, but also the, the various flowers and trees and plants when they come into season, when they bloom, when the leaves change, um, when the first snow arrives, when the ice comes onto Walden Pond, when the ice melts on Walden Pond. I have been working on that. I call that my calendar with a K. And I'm keeping a very detailed account. And, and it is a yearly record or will be a yearly record of, of the flora and fauna and seasonal changes in Concord. I am not sure what I want to do with that, but I at least am keeping track of all of these changes for my, for my own edification. Well, please keep doing it because we figured out what to do with it uh, in the future. <laughs> well, I, I am I am glad that my my labors have not gone for naught. <laughs> they haven't. You know, your records. It sounds a lot like what Darwin did. Were you inspired by that? Well, I have I have read Mr. Darwin's first book, The Voyages of the Beagle, and I consider him a a first rate naturalist, and I look forward to anything else that that he would publish. There's several quotes that, that I've read from you, and some of them I have no clue what you're talking about, and some of them just moved me personally. One of them was, I long ago lost a hound, a bay horse, and a turtle dove, and it was still on their trail. Could you tell me what that was all about? Well, I suppose we've all had our losses. Okay, we'll just leave it at that. I, I know you're not a lover of government. If you could speak to that a little bit. Well, all I ask for is a government that respects the right of all individuals. I think that that is not too much to ask. A government that respects the ideal that all men are created equal. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That is in our Declaration of Independence, yet our government does not seem to be very willing to follow that dictate. Any government that would follow that and the golden rule do unto others as you would have others do unto you, 
that is the sort of government that I would like to see, the government that respects the rights of all individuals, not just not just white men, but men of color, women of color, a government that respects all of us. And, and Frederick Douglass has said the exact same thing. He was born in this country, and he is a man, and, and he has lived in Massachusetts, yet he is considered less than human or not human at all by the very government that supposedly is ruling us. And so I would like to see a government that respects all of us, not just white men. Years ago, somebody told me they, that they changed in modern times. They changed the uh, golden rule, and it is now he who has the gold makes the rules. Well, that seems to be the way that it is in my time period as well. How, how about the, uh, the president right now? Is he doing a good job? I have to admit, I feel that it is too much to read one newspaper a week. And whenever I am in the woods, I find it is no business to be thinking of something out of the woods. Our current president, of course, being James Buchanan. James Buchanan seems to me to be the worst kind of politician because he is a northerner who thinks like a southerner. And so I find that if I start to think about Washington or President Buchanan or the fugitive slave law or any of that sort of thing, it usually ruins my walks. <laughs> and so, and, and so I, I try to think of things in the woods when I am in the woods and try to forget everything that is out of the woods. <laughs> oh, I don't know if there has ever been better advice. Blessed is he who has never read a president's message. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I, there's a couple last things I want to ask. Women's rights. Where, where are you on that? How are women treated right now? Well, uh, my mother and my sister seem very happy. Uh, are you talking about what sort of right are you talking about? Uh, women in general. Can women vote? Oh, no. But why would they want to? Should black people be able to vote? Well, if, if women want to vote, then they should be allowed to. If, uh, if Negroes want to vote, they should be allowed to. But however, and this goes back to being associated with Mr. Garrison, no union with slaveholders. The, the men that run for office are either uh, Southerners who hold slaves or they are Northerners who support slavery. So I, I do not vote for anybody. I have never voted and I do not even vote at town meeting. So I want nothing to do with any of this government. Wow. So, and my, and my mother and my sister feel the same way. They, they are even more true blue Garrisonians than I. Interesting. You've done some traveling, haven't you? Is there some place in the world that is your favorite besides the pond? Well, I, I've been to New York. Have you been to New York? I have, yes. Yes, do not go. Um, <laughs> I felt the same way. I almost got mugged in New York. Well, what good are a million men when they do not even respect one man? When I was in New York, I thought that the most respectable part of the population were the pigs in the street. I have been to Canada. I did not like Canada. All I got out of Canada was a cold, and I did not enjoy <laughs> that. The farthest west I have ever been is the Berkshire Mountains here in western Massachusetts. I would like to see the far west. I would like to see the plains before they are all gone. I would like to see Indians out on the plains. So perhaps I would like to go to the far west someday. But other than that, I, I, I travel a good deal in Concord, and I am quite happy being here. I, I have no desire to go eastward, and I certainly have no desire to go to Europe. I do not have to see the Rhine or the Seine or, or the Thames because I have three rivers in Concord. I have the Sudbury and the Assabet and the Concord. And I do not have to see the Alps because I have Punkatasset Hill, 
uh, here in Concord. So, uh, so I have no desire to go eastward. If I go eastward, I find cities and people. I would rather go westward. Eastward, I go by force, but westward, I go free. When you say that, what I hear is the appreciation that you have for what is already around you. Well, I was born in Concord. I have lived in Concord almost my entire life, and I trust that I will die here. I find that Concord is in me, and I, uh, I am in Concord. I find that it's the most estimable place in all the world. Very nice. H- how's your health right now? Oh, I suppose I am, I am well enough. I, I, I suffer with my lungs on occasion from the consumption. Father is suffering from it very poorly and is very, doing very poorly right now. But I go for my walks every day. And I think being in the midst of the woods and, and, and going for my walks is like a tonic. And it, it helps me on, on a daily basis. So, so I think that I am well enough. I, I am as well as I deserve, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope so. I, I would ask you as we're wrapping this up, if you were to look back at your life and you were to pick your greatest accomplishment so far and and maybe even if you'd be willing to share the thing that you regret that you wish you'd maybe done better with I, i'd love to hear the answer to those two questions well the only regret i have that i is that i am not as wise as the day that i was born as for looking back i rarely have regrets but i i also rarely have anticipation for the future. I have great faith that the sun will come up tomorrow, but I am more concerned about the present moment and living in the present moment. I call it the gospel according to the present time. Uh, I will enjoy this moment of existence and I will worry about the next moment when it arrives here. Excellent advice. So the uh, question I was going to first ask you that I think I'm a little late on this one, do you prefer to be called Henry or Mr. Thoreau? Uh, some of my friends call me Mr. Thorough. My family calls me Henry. Uh, you may call me whatever you wish. Thank you. And now, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to tell you my crime. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to share my crime. And, and I, should, I should tell you that I am no priest or minister. <laughs> Nonetheless, I have a lot of respect for your judgment and your wisdom. And I have a feeling that you're going to tell me if I've done the right thing or not. All right. And my crime is this. I've traveled quite a bit, and occasionally I'll, I'll take a, a trinket from the place that I go. So, for example, when I saw the pyramids, there was just a rock on the ground nearby, and I bring that with me. And my goal is, at some point, when I do build the house that I intend to die in, that I'm going to use these rocks that I've collected, and they're going to be part of the structure that I built. And a lot of these rocks or shells that I've collected, I have them labeled and all of them in this container. But when I was at the pond, the rock that I wanted weighed 15 pounds and was in the middle of the lake. And so in the middle of the lake, I picked up a 15-pound rock and I put it in my luggage and traveled home with it. Is it okay that I I have that rock? I will not tell anyone if you don't. <laughs> okay, that that sounds fair enough. We will um, we will we will keep that secret amongst ourselves. But I, I I cannot fault you for that at all. Thank you. Well, Henry, I thank you so much for your time, and wish you good health for you and your family. This was a pleasure. It was it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. While speaking with a friend of Henry's on another of these calls, I was told, "I wonder which Henry you'll get when you call him." He was implying Thoreau could be a curmudgeon at times, 
After our conversation, though, I understood how he could be interpreted that way because he was going to live his life on his terms, no matter what, and nothing was going to change that. Henry chose a path to follow early in life and followed it with his whole heart. Instead of wishing for more, fearing for the future, or dreading the past, he spent all of his time in the moment, enjoying what was right in front of him, regardless of if he was writing an essay, taking a bath, or watching the sunrise. It appears that the only thing he loved as much as solitude and time to think was his town of Concord. Although he died too young, when I asked him about the places he had traveled, instead of telling me about everywhere he'd been or might want to visit, he of course did the opposite, listing all the places he didn't want to go or never wanted to see again because they were not conquered. He wanted to live and die in Concord, Massachusetts, and he did both. Thank you for listening, and don't forget that when you subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History podcast, you're making it possible for us to create more content. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History.